Last fall, Hamlin University dismissed art history professor Dr. Erica Lopez-Prater for showing her students two Islamic artworks that depicted the Prophet Muhammad, an act that Hamlin administration, uh, Hamlin, Hamlin administrators branded as Islamophobic. According to Hamlin University President Fainis Miller, respect for observant Muslims in that classroom should have superseded academic freedom. But under sustained pressure from national criticism, and after the public announcement of a lawsuit by the dismissed professor, the university administrators decided to walk back its use of the term Islamophobic in this case. But questioned linger, did anything change? Has anything actually changed at Hamlin in terms of their, their perspective on, on professorial discretion, academic freedom, and so on? Should academics purge their courses of content that might be offensive or trigger negative emotions from their students? Does the charge of Islamophobia even make sense? And is it right to frame the controversy at Hamlin as one over academic freedom versus protecting students or protecting their religious beliefs? So welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Aaron Smith, a fellow and instructor at ARI. With me today is ARI senior fellow Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. So I think I want to start out by just reviewing some of the facts uh, of the case that have been reported so far in case people, you know, have not been following it. Um, so what happened over at Hamlin? So I went to Hamlin University. That's where I got my undergraduate degree in, in philosophy is one of the reasons why I wanted to join you on this podcast. Um, so this, the event in question occurred uh, last fall, so fall semester. Um, in an art history class, so this is October 6, 2022, uh, uh, an adjunct instructor, Dr. Erica Lopez Prater, uh, shows two paintings of the, uh, well, paintings, illustrations of the Prophet Muhammad, one from the 14th century, one from the 16th century. Both paintings were done by uh, Islamic artists for Islamic patrons. Uh, they're both famous works of art. And knowing that you know, showing uh, images of the prophet, even, you know, very religiously respectful ones uh, could cause some trouble. She put in the syllabus, the teacher put in the syllabus that that she would be doing. So the students could know in advance that we will be showing uh, artworks that depict religious figures, you know, like Jesus, the Buddha, and so on. And this was a global art history class. So she gave people plenty of warning that this was part of the content. And then in the class in question, uh, the professor talked for a few minutes about what she was going to show, why she was going to show it, why she thinks it's important to show it, uh, and gave students the option to, you know, turn off their video because this was an online class, turn off their video so they don't have to see it if they have, you know, objections to it and so on. So she did like everything she could to kind of give students an out if they didn't want to watch it. Um, and yet one of uh, her students, uh, Aram Watadella, the current president of Hamlin's Muslim student organization, uh, complained to Dr. Prater after the class for including that kind of content. And then the next day she emailed university administration to uh, complain and ask what to do next. Uh, so the same day she got a meeting with Hamlin's president, uh, Phineas Miller. Um, the next day, Dr. Prater wrote an email to Wetadella trying to kind of head off you know, this so this doesn't become into anything big. Uh, apologizing for the fact that the student felt uncomfortable in the class, explaining that it was not her intention to, you know, hurt anybody's feelings or offend them. Um, and she also noted that, you know, 
she did give plenty of warning to the students. And so she said something like, you know, um, I'm sorry that you, you know, chose to watch and then have hurt feelings and so on. So, um, but that didn't go anywhere. The student said she felt completely unheard. Uh, and then in November, uh, David Everett, he's the associate vice president of inclusive excellence, you know, the kind of diversity office, uh, called the professor's actions. Now, I can't remember whether this was in a university-wide email or in an interview for the Oracle, the student newspaper, it was one of the two. He called it, quote, undeniably inconsiderate, disrespectful, and Islamophobic. Uh, and, he, and he said, in, in lieu of this event, uh, I think he meant in light, in lieu of this event, it's a quote, it was decided that it was best that this faculty member was no longer part of the Hamlin community, close quote. Um, and so Dr. Prater, who was scheduled to teach a course in contemporary art the following semester in the spring, uh, was told that her contract was not going to be renewed and that her services were not going to be needed anymore at Hamlin. Um, there wasn't, I think, much response in defense of the professor from within the university, but uh, Dr. Mark Berkson, he's the chair of the Department of Religion, uh, he published a long article defending Dr. Prater's actions. I mean, he teaches Islam <laughs> for many years at the university. Um, and the two days later, the newspaper took it down, took the article down, uh, claiming that it was students were saying it was causing them harm. We should say something about that notion of harm. Um, they recently put the put it back up on the Oracle's website, and it's I think it's worth reading. Um, and then several days later, this is on December nine. In a letter to uh, the campus, uh, President Miller uh, and Doc, uh, and David Everett, they both kind of co-signed the letter, wrote that respect, quote, respect for observant Muslims in that classroom should have superseded academic freedom, close quote. Uh, and, you know, just as a result of all this, um, Hamlin has gotten in nationwide criticism. I mean, basically, no one is on the side of the Hamlin administration in terms of what they did. I mean, you get university faculty writing letters and articles. You get Islamic art scholars like Drs. Uh, uh, Amna, uh, Amna Khalid and Christine Gruber. These are specialists in Islamic art uh, defending the professor free speech groups, even some Muslim advocacy groups. I mean, everybody's coming to the defense of the professor, uh, at least in print. Um, and then, so finally, uh, there's a, a publicly announced, uh, it, it was publicly announced that there's uh, the professor's filing a lawsuit against the university. So on January 17, uh, Hamlin the University backed off from the charge of Islamophobia saying that it was their use of the term was flawed, you know, not perfect. Uh, and in a statement, uh, Pre President Miller says that, you know, it was kind of, she says, quote, sometimes we misstep, you know, we're learning, you know, words were used. Um, our use of the term Islamophobic was flawed um, in very sort of weak kind of language. Like everybody makes mistakes, you know, stuff happens. It's a global problem. Uh, without really, I think, taking um, real responsibility, I think, for what happened. Because what you'd like to hear them say is, yeah, we didn't investigate anything. Um, and we threw a professor under the bus. There's no apology. Anyway, so this is roughly what, uh, this is, I mean, this is the kind of rough timeline of what happened. Um, anything you want to add to that? 
yeah just two two things about that chronology and and the what hamlin pu then published in january and they've had three first saying yeah we did what's right then our board of trustees are wondering if we did what's right sort of and then it's oh maybe we made some mistakes and uh, but yeah it's very weaselly in, in what the mistakes are and, and just to to reinforce how weaselly it is the so you put in the timeline so in november an official of the university as you said he's vice president of inclusive excellent is telling the university which means and then it, it it's, he's telling the the faculty students he's telling the university that as you quoted it was decided it was best that this faculty member was no longer part of the hamlin community so he's clearly telling them we've not renewed her to teach more because of this incident and they're this is in november and their public first public statement in january is oh the new york times and others are alleging that we let her go or even fired her we didn't do any such thing and this is from that january statement so two months after telling the very students and and university that we let her go oh but we're not renewing her because of this incident the, um it was put in this january 11th statement so after saying don't say that we fired her it's this decision not to offer her another class was made at the unit level and in no way reflects on her ability to adequately teach the class close quote and they, that's an outright lie from what they've i mean they, they were lying in november or they're lying here and that like they were willing to publish this january 11th and now when they're backtracking they don't backtrack on that and say, yeah, and like, we've totally misrepresented what actually happened. What we told you in November publicly is what actually happened. So, and that's the sense in which they're backtracking under public pressure, not because I think that they've really reassessed and think, okay, yeah, we really made tremendous mistakes and mistakes at the level of we're defaming somebody. And uh, as part of the timeline is the professor suing, which I actually, I think is good. And part of the lawsuit is the, there's defamation here. And I mean, so it might, the most charitable interpretation I think you can make of their backtracking is the lawyers are advising them. You can yeah, say this, definitely. don't say that that's the most, I doubt that that's really what's driving it, but that's the most charitable interpretation. Yeah. And a couple of things about the, um, he said that President Miller said is that the publications like the New York Times are misrepresenting. They're saying we fired her, quote, fired her, then quote, let her go, then quote, whatever, all the quotes, you know. Uh, and she said, well, I mean, that's a technicality. <laughs> so she's like, she's an adjunct. So she's not exactly, you know, full faculty. And the, 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 that's what's weaselly about it. It's you dismissed her for, for these reasons. And you had, uh, uh, an administration official of the university, presumably speaking for the university, claiming that this is what we did as a result of it. And then when he said, uh, uh, so, she, so she, they said, well, she was allowed to continue finishing that term, teaching the course to the end of the term until she turned in her grades. And they're like, well, it happened at the unit level. Well, what is that supposed to mean? Who cares if it's at the unit level or non-unit level? Uh, it's 
and then it doesn't represent our view about her ability to adequately teach the class. Well, you don't have to be, you don't have to say she can't adequately teach a class. I mean, they're not saying we didn't fire, we didn't get rid of her because of what she did in class. So it's all the languages weaselly. Um, yeah. And then the thing about when uh, uh, President Miller said, uh, respect for observant Muslims in that classroom should have superseded uh, academic freedom. And she puts this like in print to, to, in public. And then she says, um, Nothing we said should be characterized as our, our intent to say uh, something should supersede academic. <laughs> it's an exact opposite of what she said. Right. And we never intended. I, that's why it's kind of lawyers have to be probably <laughs> telling them something. I don't I, I can't imagine anything has really changed about their perspective on these issues. Um, and yeah, one of the and things I think, I think I was going to say that's part of the significance of the episode and why it's getting, I think, rightly wide coverage and in, that coverage includes not even just in the US it's getting coverage uh, in other places as well and that's because it's symptomatic of university I think particularly university administration and there's a worry that this is just it's to say it's a symptom it's going to be more and more like this the environment on university campuses and the better professor or even like half decent i think are worried about that yeah and i think and so there's there was a question is like uh does the sort of outpouring of support for that professor indicate some kind of cultural change some kind of change in the way um uh, people invested in this, you know, faculty and universities and so on, view placing something above a teacher's ability to teach in the classroom. Um, I kind of don't think so, or it, I don't think so, because I think if you changed a few of these variables, I don't think you would have gotten this kind of outpouring. You would have gotten support for some from some, but I mean, what if it, and part of the, part of what came out of this was that um, people are specialized in uh, Islamic studies and Islamic art and stuff. We're, we're saying it's actually not true that Islam in general and across the board or Muslims, put it that way, uh, I mean, it's your, the Muslims across the board think it's improper to create or to view images of the prophet. Uh, apparently, you can see these all over the place in Iran uh, and in Turkey. Uh, you can buy postcards of Mohammed on the streets and just it's kind of not uh, I mean, maybe some people look down on it, but still, it's 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 a real phenomenon. But what if they were wrong about that? What if it was just that Islam, a hundred percent everywhere, all Muslims uh, think you cannot look at this? I think then the response would have been weaker. Uh, I think it gave them an out in a way. Um, and also, it's that the images that were shown were meant to be to glorify. The prophet. I mean, they were respectful uh, images. I mean, if the teacher had shown like uh, Charlie Hebdo or something critical, uh, I think the, it would be their response would have been completely different. It would have been uh, probably the opposite of this. Some groups like maybe fire or someone would have come out and said, look, you can show what you want in class. But I think the faculty would not have jumped to the defense of somebody who showed that. So I think this is a it's nice to see, actually. 
people coming out and saying you can't do this this is like really shameful you shouldn't be this this is dangerous for the profession it's dangerous for education it's a very very bad sign if this kind of thing is okay so i really like to see that but i think it would have just been very different had it been a little more controversial yeah i think that's right and it, it's i think the there's been a response on the part of faculty and it, i think it's notable that this is faculty outside of Hamlin. Ham, the Hamlin faculty, with the, the exception of the professor in religious studies, seems to basically have caved. So the allegations in the lawsuit are that there was a university-wide email that went, I think it was an email that went out saying, don't engage with this and sort of at least implying, don't engage with Prater and that almost all the faculty did that and, and people she was communicating with before and who expressed, yeah, you didn't do anything wrong, but maybe still apologize to the student. But what you did in class was, was good educationally and we get good feedback from students about your class and so on. This was part, there was a verbal agreement, the allegation is that she was gonna teach something in the spring and in part because she's doing well. And that when this communication went out, it, it's it's like she's persona non grata and, and people shouldn't interact with her. And it seemed like almost, I mean, if the allegations are true, that that's what the faculty did. But faculty at other universities are responding to this. And I think, it, going to what you were saying, that if the, the situation had been a bit different, it wasn't that this is teaching history and it's history that's showing Islam in a good light, and the, the, that... The, 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 the response would have been different. And I think, unfortunately, having seen what in a number of these episodes, when they happen, what the faculty at, at the university does and how uh, cowardly they are, that there's an element where it's, look, we've been towing the line. We put in trigger warnings. We tell students, I find, I mean, as a teacher of philosophy, when I looked at what, oh, okay, it's one thing on the syllabus to be saying, okay, this is a global art thing. We're gonna, a global art history class. We're gonna be looking at a lot of different images. There'll be images of the Buddha. It's, okay, you can put that in. It gives them some, okay, this is what I'm getting into. But the idea that you have for, when you show anything that could be controversial to someone, that it's, you have a two minute, or I think it's reported as like it's a two minute plus about, oh, yeah. this, you might find this, how could you conduct a philosophy class if which is all the time challenging conventional wisdom ideas students might hold and so on and every well okay now we're going to get to something that hume says that well you might he's really against religion so you might find this offensive if you're to, and to do this the assignment the assignment's optional <laughs> yeah i mean that this is your attitude towards students yeah. i find shocking so i think there's a lot of professors who Okay, yeah, we're, we've been told by the diversity people we have to do this. And I put, okay, I put it on my syllabus. I give these warnings and so on. And here we're teaching history. And this is an image that is meant to be reverential. So, and still you can get reprimanded for this or lose your job for that. And, so, and the, there's an element that they're responding like that in, in a way that 
yeah, I can oppose this now. It doesn't affect me too much. I'm not going to lose my job at my university. I don't have to stand up for some controversial person at my university. So, so it's low stakes to oppose it right now for a lot of these people. I don't think that's the motivation for everybody. I, I think some people are yeah. courageous in what they're doing. But for some, I think it's, it's yeah, I can oppose this now. If it came to my university, I would cave like so many faculty, I think, do cave and, and faculty at Hamlin cave. So I think there, there's an element like that. It's like, I, we're doing everything you tell us and you're still gonna come after us if one student objects to the, yeah, the trigger warning wasn't good enough or I don't care about trigger warnings, which is what it seemed like in this case, then it, it's, oh yeah, okay. And then you, the, the administration will just side with the student, not even talk to the faculty members. And, they th and I think part of what they get is, yeah, this is what our administration is more and more like. Um, yeah. And so I can imagine this happening at our university. And, so, and I think that's part of the response. And I, I think a heavy element of this is this, the growth and the sort of installation of these diversity offices, diversity, inclusion, equity, and so on uh, in, in universities, that they now have a whole set of uh, criteria that they have to follow which are too, well, I was going to say too vague. I mean, it's true that they're too vague, but it, I think it's worse than that. But it's how are they supposed to follow this? I mean, they have um, their, they have a statement of civility uh, for their website. What do they do with that? Um, and where they say, you know, we uh, completely respect academic freedom. You're going to be exposed to a broad range of ideas, some of which you'll find, you know, I don't know, offensive or challenging. And but we explore them anyway, you know. But it has to be done in a manner that's respectful of students. Well, what's respectful in that context? You could say, well, it was respectful to tell them in advance that some of this might you might find distressing. Uh, and just FYI, is that respectful? Or is it not not respectable if you show it anyway? Even telling them they can turn off their cameras is that not respectful? And it's like if somebody's hurt and complains they 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 suffered harm, uh, in other words, hurt feelings. Um, I mean that that shouldn't count as harm. But is, if they can be thrown under the bus by the administration like this for falling afoul of this thing, I think everybody should be worried. Um, and particularly, I mean, if you're gonna have a diversity office. Shouldn't it help students navigate the fact that there is diversity on campus? I mean, in other words, there's there are different ideas, different worldviews. Not everybody holds the view you do. So if a student came to a, 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 a rational diversity office and it's like, well, you'd help them think, well, not everyone holds the views you do. Um, some of the things that you find sacrilegious or the people around you or many people, perhaps many other people don't. Um, and, you know, part of being adjusting to a wider world, uh, with that, which has different worldviews, um, is coming to terms with that. And part of, I mean, it's like getting out of one's village and realizing, oh, well, not everyone does things like I do. And that's part of uh, growing up. It's part of becoming more cosmopolitan. And I think when it comes to having a, like a liberal arts school, it's if you don't, if you protect them, from uh, learning to confront or isolate them away from having to confront the fact that there are different worldviews and you're not the only one on the planet. Uh, and not, not everyone, just because you find something sacrilegious doesn't mean everyone has to adopt the actions that, that you would take, you know.
it does the students yeah, a on, yeah on any legitimate rational conception of respect of what it means for professors at a university to respect students this is one of the most disrespectful things that you can do so you're and part of what's come out and part of what's good about this episode is that there's been some muslim groups saying that these people um so a student like this and she was as you said at the outset she's what she's head of the muslim student association at and she's a senior Howard, it's right? not her first year in college and care has supported her so there so there's certainly been muslim groups that of course supporting this kind of thing but there have been some that are opposing it and part of their opposition is these people don't get to speak for every Muslim. It is not true the way that they portray that they're the one voice. Everybody thinks exactly the way that they think. Everybody has exactly the same religious taboos that they have. Um, so that's part of what they're opposing. And for the university, basically without any investigation, any thought, I, I think it, it, when you read about what happened, it's pretty close to, there's no thought involved. It's, we've got a student who fits into the so-called marginalized that our diversity, equity, inclusion people should be obsessively focused on, is complaining that she's upset that one of her religious taboos has been um, violated and everybody has to succumb and obey to that including all the students so you can't have a class now that will show some of this significant art or um in the that's significant in the islamic world in islamic history you can't show this because you've got one student who's has a certain view about islam and says she's upset whether she was or not is a, i think a real question a, and now that's going to govern everybody and the idea that you can't question, but like maybe this isn't even true that it's everybody in Islam uh, in, as a Muslim thinks this, that this religious taboo, well, does it have any good grounds for it? And to then ask more widely that you would ask in a philosophy class, well, does religion as such have any good grounds for it? So all these questions, you can't ask these questions because you've got one person who's upset and it it's this is part of it. It's the, the kind of the manufacturing of grievances. It's that you find the person who's behaving sort of the most irrationally, who's militantly religious. And it's not just, well, this is what my religious taboos are. So I'm going to walk out of the class or turn away from the computer screen when you're showing stuff. It's I'm going to make everybody else follow this. And the idea that caving into that shows respect for an institution of learning and for students who are coming to a university that I want to learn. And any good student coming to a university, would I want to be challenged. I want to hear things that I probably don't think are true. I want people to challenge what I've been brought up in and so on, because I want to really figure out what I should think and what I should believe and not be confined to my uh, so far kind of more parochial existence like, like part of a university is to broaden a person's world view and th yeah the, the, the idea that oh this is what it means to respect students that's a joke yeah and and part of what i mean part of what triggered me about this whole thing 
was it's and it's not just that it's a they're catering to one student's views they're catering to an irrational view it's some kind of a irrational religious taboo and that's what we have to then place on a pedestal that can't get challenged it's not even just a different view um and it's it's such a concession to uh, the irrational i think um and, and then when you think about just when you think about it in its contemporary context, this is a version of Islam. Some of the commentators will put it as it's, it's the, this is the conservatism axis in Islam, but it's, uh, it, I would put it, it's the militant version that comes out of Saudi Arabia, Iran as well, that wants to impose their religious view on everybody. Um, it, so it's totalitizing in that kind of way. It's a threat to more peaceful, middle of the road Muslims in the Middle East. Uh, and it, I mean, there's plenty of history to show that in the last decades. And the idea that like, that's part of it, when you put it, 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 it's caving to the irrational. That's who you're caving into when you cave into the student or care. And if you watch some of the it, it, like it's the uh, of their press conference and read some of what allegedly happened in some of the university meetings to to quote discuss this thing um where the professor's being compared to uh i mean racist and things like that it it's that's who you're giving power to and that's the way in which it's it's a caving to like a real irrationality yeah and then, and then, of course, there's this um, charge of Islamophobia. So this, I think, first of all, well, we should say something about that concept. <laughs> but I mean, just as it's thrown around, um, to charge this professor with that smear, I would say, um, is I think everyone regards this, and I think rightly is, is ridiculous. There's nothing um, bigoted about her approach. There was nothing um, that was not sensitive. Um, there's no uh, there's no evidence of any sort of hatred coming out of this. I mean, I, I've seen the artwork. The artworks are interesting. I mean, they're, they're, these are perfectly worth seeing. The primary sources, uh, you know, from I guess what you call the medieval art. Um, the idea that this is stemming from some sort of motive of hatred or bigotry or something is crazy and people realize it. And then the, the executive director of care, the Minnesota chapter, um, uh, said, well, it, it can be Islamophobic without intent. Well, so then it's just anything that offends somebody's sensibilities then is going to get labeled with that smear i mean i mean what's that supposed to mean anyway is it they're scared of muslims is it they're critical of islam can you have hate speech to a an ideology <laughs> I, there's something really deeply wrong with that concept because it seems to lump together um a, a bigotry on the one on the one hand hatred that's not the same thing criticism that's definitely not the same thing. 
and all into one sort of package. And then you just sort of smear someone. So it's if somebody's critical of Islam or thinks, yeah, I think um, if you said, I think I think Islam should be criticized. I think it should be even ridiculed. If you, if you said something like that, is that coming from hatred? Is it a bigoted view? Is it just criticism? And then, and you, yeah, I think there's a real problem with the usage of that concept. Oh, yeah. It, it is a smear. And if one starts with, what is it designed to do? It's designed to do what you were indicating, that it's designed to make any and all criticism of Islam as a doctrine as a, and a religion. A religion is a body of ideas, values, and practices. To make any and all criticism of that illegitimate, and part of it, like it's a phobia. It's it is inherently irrational, disconnected from reality, from fact, from logic, from argument. If it, you're criticizing it, so it, it's like any criticism is like the person who's scared of spiders for no reason, and and it's so it's to put every kind of criticism into the category of the irrational and immoral. And, oh, well, don't cause, accuse me of being irrational or immoral. So I'll stop saying anything critical about Islam because I dare not be branded Islamophobic, which brands me as irrational and immoral. And part of what it plays upon is it's true that if you haven't, it, it plays upon, for instance, um, racism. So it's true that if you have an evaluation based on the color of a person's skin, it's inherently irrational. That is, I mean, and certainly from what we know today. So any modern person who thinks, well, blacks are bad because they have black skin um, or Arabs. So this is part of what it's, it's blending together Arabs and Muslims. Or so. so anyone Arab looking is irrational because they look uh, Arab. That is like that isn't it's inherently irrational to engage in that kind of judgment. But to judge somebody based on the ideas, values, and practices that they engage in, precisely because those are chosen and they're significant, what a person does. So if you don't like communists, you can't brand that oh, your communist phobia or phobic or something like that. If you have good reasons for thinking, look, I think communism is wrong. I think there's a lot of irrationality involved in it. I think part of what's involved in it is a hatred for productive people. It's that's captured by Marx's slogan from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's a slogan designed to bleed the productive. If you have that kind of view of this is what communism is and that anybody who's really preaching this and understands what they're preaching, so there's something irrational and immoral in regard to that. That's a legitimate view that you cannot add, well, the, you know, but you're communophobic, as though doing that, there's something irra irrational. Now, there can be irrational evaluations of communism, but there's such a thing as a rational evaluation of it. And that's true for Islam and more broadly for other religion, Christianity, Judaism, you might think that, uh, as I do, that Christianity is inherently irrational. I think it's designed to be irrational when you think of its history and its response to the Greek and Roman world, and that you have an evaluation of that 
um, you can have rational grounds for that evaluation. And it's subject to evaluation precisely because it's chosen. And this is trying to make something that's chosen, that is what religion you think is correct and you're going to practice and so on, as no, treat it, it's, it's equivalent to the unchosen and you're inherently irrational if you have any negative views and express any negative views about the doctrine. And, and that's the way it's trying to isolate it from all criticism. It, so it's a very corrupt concept. And the other thing is that why is it that religions get this kind of protection and not other ideologies? So I'm an objectivist. I've had professors say things that were openly and deliberately insulting about it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're entitled to their views. I don't share them, um, but I don't run to the diversity office. But even if I did, unless they were somebody was singling out to me personally, personally insulting me, like you are an idiot or something, yeah, then they wouldn't look kindly on that, but nobody get fired. But it's if you're a Hegelian or a Platonist, you can't claim that kind of protected status. Um, but if you're if it's a religious view, then somehow everybody has to like treat it with some kind of ultimate respect, which I think is back to the point about your, it's not just sensitivity, it's sensitivity to certain specific irrational perspectives um, that and that's what's being placed above a rational education. So they, they get that special status. And I think partly it's Islam gets even more special status because of uh, just how militant they've. Uh, yeah, how, I mean, as they would put it, how marginalized they supposedly are. But as I would put it, it's because it's openly irrational. So it's more when, when you get this, the, the kind of um, Islamic viewpoint that dominates the in Saudi Arabia's leadership or dominates in Iran's leadership, it's openly irrational, defying the West, defying reason. Um, and that's part of what gives it standing in the mind of these diversity, equity, inclusion people. It, and, and, and if, if, as you said, if you went into them and said, look, the professor made these remarks about Ayn Rand and objectivism, uh, and even if they're not personally directive, they're just like, yeah, the people interested in this, they're sort of childish. And if they grow up, they'll abandon this. I mean, we've both heard that multiple mm -hmm. times. And to them, it was, oh, no, but this is in the sphere of argument and so on. It, but if you get a student saying, I've got this religious taboo. I can't give you any argument, any any grounds for this, but I Don't want the professor, it. yeah, silenced. And, and that's, oh, okay, then, yeah, we have to do something. And that's the way in which it it's privileging uh, and elevating the irrational. Yeah. And <sighs> this drives me nuts. It's such a disservice, we've said this, but it's worth a reason. It's such a disservice to the students and not just the complainer, but the rest of the students. I mean, I've taught, uh, I've taught philosophy in university where they're, they're, they're religiously, they're very diverse, you know, where you've got Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists in the same room. And I think they found it actually really helpful 
because they grow up in a largely Christian community. And then, you know, once they find out when we're discussing a, a unit on God, they find not everyone in the room is even a monotheist. And they've got their revelations and I've got my revelations and I have my sacred text. They have theirs. They think what, you know, what if, uh, what if a, a Muslim student in the class says, or a Muslim teacher says that Jesus is not your personal savior. Jesus is not the son of God. He's just a prophet. Do I go to the diversity office? I mean, I think one of the things is it should be to a thinking person. It should be, this is interesting. Nobody's forcing a view on you. It's to be confronted with a viewpoint is not to force you to change your viewpoint. It's not, but it's, it will confront you with material for thinking. Um, but it's also just the feelings above education. I mean, so many things are getting sacrificed uh, to this kind of irrationality. And also, in, what about all the other students in the room, including the other Muslim students in the room that, that, that aren't triggered by this? That don't they? They're, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know you could show images like this. And actually, there's, there's a lot of them, actually. Um, that, that should be interesting to them. And, and get, get out of my education, please. You know, if you're going to get out of the way yeah. of my education. Yeah. The, the, and part of, in this particular episode, part of what's come out is how ignorant Muslims are of their own religious history. Uh, and that, and I, again, I think that's deliberate. If, if you know what Saudi Arabia has done, how much funding they've put into mosques around the world, including the, what the, the education that these mosques are to offer and so on. It's to present one version as the only version of Islam. And it, I think it really is true when when you see some of these people, and, and it's not only students, you see some long-standing Muslims say, oh, I didn't know about any of this. And that, and it, it's because there's an attempt to monopolize on the part of this militant version of Islam. And yeah, you it's part of what's so bad about what the administration did is that's who they're caving into. But it, what you're bringing up more widely is if people are looking for some what can you do about this and both i think students and faculty if you formed some groups on university campuses where you're speaking for the people who want to learn and who want to be exposed to controversial things and we don't want everything um as as the dei people would put it it's sort of sanitized and and history um we expunge anything that might be a little upsetting, a little controversial. And so you could have groups that are, you're advocating for something positive. We want professors to be doing this. We want to learn about things that we may not have heard about. We want to be challenged and so on. And do that in a proactive way, not only in response to when these things happen, but part of these things happening is you can read all the various DEI bulletins that go out and what we're trying to do now and start opposing some of that on the grounds that what a proper and legitimate university education should be doing is not this, and but have a positive view of what it should be doing. And you might get some support to do it. And particularly if you're not doing it at a time of crisis, 
where it, now you're forming a group to yeah. defend this professor. Maybe nobody Nobody's will join sides. that. But yeah, um, but but that is like that would be a healthy development if something like that happened. And that's the kind of there's there's some things happening. Fire is one example of this, and a lot of the people involved have been in academia. Um, something like I'm blanking out on the heterodox academy. There's things like this, but if students joined in on this, I think that would be a really positive development. Yeah, because I mean, the university. Well, I want to say I want to talk a little bit about um, the issue of academic freedom, because um, again, there now it's got to be a hundred articles <laughs> on this issue over at Hamlin, and a lot of it is <clears throat> framed in the form of. This is a clash between academic freedom on the one hand um, and something else. Generally, it's, you know, protecting students or students' religious sensitivities or something. Um, and that you have to find a way to balance these two is the idea. And what they did was wrong in terms of academic freedom. And I want to say something about academic freedom. I mean, um, I mean, what academic freedom refers to, it's something like, faculty discretion um faculty it's that faculty have a discretion as to what they teach what they publish what they show um and that their uh, ability to research write disseminate ideas is not uh hindered by the administration or officials at the university but it's left to the subject matter experts in question and I think there's a reason why faculty want to protect that, or they want to have, put it this way, have that ability to be unhindered uh, by university officials in their pursuit of truth and the dissemination of ideas. So I think there's something important there that is trying to be defended. There's a question about how to think about that concept, uh, academic freedom, and what it amounts to when you have universities, I mean, they're businesses in effect, you know, so they have to decide on policies for how do, what kind of latitude should, do we give our faculty uh, when it comes to teaching, disseminating ideas and so on? Are there certain restrictions that we want to put in or put in place? How do you deal with um, sensitive issues? I mean, from an organization wide perspective, like, I mean, if you're if you're thinking about that as an administrator, and you should think about that as an administrator, like, how do we face these issues, because they're going to come up? What do we do when we think a teacher is teaching something that's either openly irrational or <clears throat> hateful in some way? And we as an administrator, you have to deal with that, you have to think well, what our stance should be. So they have to make those kinds of decisions. But um, I think there are confusions that can be uh, generated by putting it as a freedom. Yeah, there's huge confusions, <clears throat> and particularly in the context of the US and the way that this is used and the, the, the so-called concept of academic freedom, it's um, I, one way to think about it. Th this is a description from Ayn Rand. It, it might not be word for word of a similar kind of thing. So not of academic freedom, but of a, it's a messy little makeshift of a mixed economy. And that I think is the way to think about it because the, the reason it arises as a political issue 
not just, well, this is how a particular university is deciding to operate, but that there's some inter something going wrong politically, some interference with rights, is that universities and colleges in America, I think pretty much across the board, can no longer be regarded as private. So obviously there's some that are just explicitly public. They're government-run, government-financed institutions. But more broadly, the way in which the government now is involved in higher education, and that includes crucially something like student loans or so-called student loans. So, so much of the funding of universities actually is government money. And you can call them loans, but obviously now there's a whole political uh, uh, debate and attempt from the Biden administration to forgive the loans, which means they're government grants. Um, and that just means you're straight financing the, these universities. So there's a way in which some of these are nominally private, but the more and more government is involved all over higher education, they're government institutions. And so the idea that the First Amendment applies here, it doesn't apply to a private entity as a private entity, but it applies, it's supposed to be a hindrance on government, that government cannot interfere with freedom of speech. And then they're trying to figure out, okay, well, if governments run higher education and universities and so on, well, then they have to respect freedom of speech. How do you respect freedom of speech? The, and academic freedom, so is often when we put it, well, this is an issue of the First Amendment, this is an issue of freedom of speech. But the inescapable fact is once the government takes it over, there is no such thing as freedom of speech. Freedom of speech pertains to private citizens and organizations and means the government should be hands off in regard to that. But once it's got the hands all over it, what does it mean to say, well, now be hands off? I mean, what it would really mean is you can't set any policies of what goes on in the classroom. So the, the, the professor decides he's supposed to be teaching a history class, but he decides, look, I'm really upset about the war in Ukraine. So I'm going to spend the whole semester talking about the war. And we're supposed to be learning about 18th century England. But and it's like, can you say, well, but don't interfere with my freedom of speech. I've got freedom of speech. And as a private citizen, you would like if that's what you decide now is most important to talk about and you're going to shift to doing that, you could do that. But the, uh, government running colleges, and universities, it has to be able to say, no, you were hired to teach a course on 18th century England. And if now all you're talking about is Ukraine, um, we're getting somebody else and we're firing you. And so, but then it, the reply is, but that's my freedom of speech. And so that's the sense in which it's a messy makeshift. You need something like this as trying to stop government from dictating everything that happens in the classroom. But on the other hand, if they're really running the universities and colleges, they have to have control about what's going on in the, they can't, it just can't be anything goes. And That's this what is, running it means. Yeah. And so this is why it's, it's an, you cannot solve this issue other than by getting government out of higher education. But so long as it's involved in the way that it's involved in the US, it's, there, it's a huge issue it's unsolvable because you simultaneously have the First Amendment that's part of the Constitution, and you have massive involvement of government in education, and they're not compatible. Uh, but 
having said all that, yes, it's true that if you think of as yourself uh, or project a, a good professor, part of when he would negotiate with a college or university and a private college or university is, okay, yeah, I'm coming to teach. Yeah, the terms of it. And it, you try to get as clear as possible. Yeah, I'm basically sovereign in my classroom as long as I'm doing I'm teaching, if I'm hired to teach math, I'm really teaching math or if I'm not. So, and that's part of what the con, you would have a contract that's really specifying. It's clear, your hands off in regard to this. If I decide that the best way to teach this subject is to be a little controversial, to provoke the students a little bit, I have discretion to do that. Like that's part of what my job is and part of what I'm being hired to do. And you're going against the contract if you all of a sudden step in because one student complains that they got a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I was deliberately trying to make them uncomfortable. And part of what fire pushes on in these lawsuits is that, as, the, as in the case of what you were reading here for Hamlin, is they have handbooks and so on that's, that try to spell out, this is our policy, this is what professors can do, this is what we expect to happen in the classroom. And as you said, for Hamlin, they have, we expect students to be challenged, that they might be, un, I forget what the exact language was, but they might be uncomfortable and so on. And so part of the lawsuit is, because apparently Hamlin even says, this is like, these are real terms. This is in effect like a contract. And the lawsuit's alleging, well, you've gone against these terms because the, there's no way to read what the, uh, Professor Prater was doing that is somehow falls afoul of these terms. And I think that's, I mean, if you take seriously those terms, that's true. I mean, it's, it's, you can't think of her as she's violated this. Yeah. And so when it comes to, <clears throat> when it comes to, um, this is another thing that would be uh, very nice if universities were private, you would get, you would start to see um, where students, in other words, um, customers, put it that way, uh, want to go if you have, well, we tell faculty what they can and can't teach. We protect students from ideas that are uncomfortable. And that, that is, a, that is, that is, no one's rights are violated if you do that as a private university. And I can have a college that's 100% uh, objectivism. If anybody disagrees with objectivism, they get kicked out. I can have a Mormon college and just you have to agree with this and everybody has to take a confession of, uh, of adherence to that. It's a free, it would, I mean, it would be like, it's a free country. Do hold whatever kind of schools you find interesting and you can find customers for as long as you don't violate anybody's rights. Um, do what you want. But then if you had schools that say, we don't do that kind of thing, this is an open inquiry, open research kind of area and you'll be challenged sometimes offended and but you know you'll be exposed to a wide range of ideas i think you'd you'd, you'd see where customers want to go or students in effect want to go um, yeah and customers here would include professors so yeah. that the, you would be competing for professors and professors would care a lot about the, what are the actual terms and in practice how does this actually work at this university or this college and do what will I will they really live up to what they're saying? And so, yeah, and, and in that sense, they're both students and professors are customers of the university and what universities would be competing for or over. Yeah. And professors, I think, by and large, they do care about this, but I think they need to stand up more. 
for these kinds of things. But I think it's very hard because partly because you said like the government involvement in this, there's a lot of legal stuff now that they have to deal with regarding the diversity, equity, things coming out of the uh, discrimination laws and so on that they have to re be really careful of because now they're legal issues. Because um, now I can be said, I mean, is the, t is the teacher now guilty of discrimination? And they have to be careful about a lot of this stuff. So it's kind of hard. But nonetheless, I think they should be more open about defending these kinds of things. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, so yeah, so there's one the legal side. The other, um, I mean, another major component is the funding side, including funding for their research and so on. So much of it comes from government or quasi-government that the more they stand up against some of the things that in effect in the end are coming from government i don't think you can for instance think of the dei and more generally the explosion in university administration just the number of people go yeah. who work there now and the amount of money that total is spent on that you can't understand that phenomenon absent understanding that so much of what's funding is government money so that it that they also worry about like well my funding and dry up or be significantly curtailed because i'm speaking up and that's one of the reasons it's a major reason not the only reason but one of the reasons you don't want government funding uh research because th that's exactly what happens and it might not be it, it happens in many ways that are unseen so when they talk about a climate of self-censorship, it's, yeah, I don't know if this will get me in trouble or not, but it's safer that I don't do this and I don't speak out. I, like, I don't know if this will jeopardize my funding, but I don't want to find out if it will. So I won't say yeah. anything. And that it, it's very hard to see that happening because what you're seeing is sort of inaction, but it it's, it, it, one has to understand it as part of the whole causal situation here. Yeah. Okay, I think we should probably uh, wrap up. Uh, we got yes. we got like only a minute or two left. Um, so <clears throat> I want to share some resources. Uh, a couple of resources, just if people want to kind of catch up or uh, on some of the details of the event and some of the kind of blowback that Hamlin is getting. Uh, there are a couple of articles that came out in the New York Times. One. Uh, earlier, one later, uh, that capture a lot of the material there and have links to, you know, further further documentation, uh, and also a couple of the articles um, that focused on Islamic art uh, and how uh, how that is viewed across the in Islam and across through the Muslim world. Um, so there's an article by uh, Dr. Amna Khalid. Uh, and there's another one by Dr. Christine Gruber. Both of these are like art, Islamic art experts. Um, I want to say is that we have a show next week. We always announce the next episode. The next episode is going to be, it's called The Reign of the Arbitrary about the pandemic. And this is going to be with Dr. Amish Adalja, Nikos Sotirikopoulos, and Mike Mazza. That'll take place uh, on Tuesday, January 24 at noon Pacific, so our regular time of day. Um, please go ahead and remember to send us your questions for future Q&A uh, episodes. We, we do these almost once a month now. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications for when we go live or release new recordings. 
if you're watching the recording, please like, comment, and share the episode in order to attract new viewers to our program. And please consider doing the same thing if you're watching on Facebook. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at newideal at einrand.org. Uh, we do read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. So that's it for today. Thank you, Ankar. And thank you to everyone for watching. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.